Frontier Missions Journal. Stories of hope for the unreached with Adventist Frontier Missions. As Jesus did with his disciples in Mark 6, verse 30 to 32, from time to time, Adventist Frontier Missions invites its workers to step away from intense frontline service and retreat to a deserted place in order to refresh physically, to revive spiritually, to share with each other what they have done on their projects, and to engage in seminars that help them cope with the challenges of mission life. But as we learned from Ali Brooks, even getting to the retreat can be quite a challenge. Canoe, taxi, bus, motorbike, small plane and truck all to get back to where Ali Brooks serves as a career missionary. Join us as Ali shares her journey from her furlough to the Fulani mission field and shortly after to a scheduled retreat in South Africa. Hi, my name is Ali Brooks. I am going to tell you the story today of my travels back from furlough, what it is like traveling all the way to my project in Africa. I just finished my furlough and I had to fly out on the plane like usual for a couple days. It's about two days of flying, um, sometimes three with the time change to get to my project in Central Africa. And first I arrive in the capital city. And the capital city is a lot more Muslim, so I always make sure to be pretty covered when I am arriving there. In my project location in the country I'm in, uh, we have a pretty new airport. Looks pretty nice, but a lot of people don't follow the same maybe rules that we learn in the U.S. and other places. So it's a bit chaotic because you arrive and people don't make lines. So you come in through the doors where they check for your yellow, yellow fever uh, vaccine and then supposedly get in line for immigration. But it's actually a big mob that just starts pushing, pushing, pushing at the gate and everybody has to fill out their papers. So then while one person is being interrogated by the guy at immigration, everyone else is just crowding around him, filling out their papers, and then trying to push to be next, I'm next, I'm next. And then they take your fingerprints, then they let you through. Um, And then you get down to get your bags, which is kind of another point of chaos. There's two different areas, but they'll just throw the bags on all of them. There's no specific spot. Um, I had air tags in my bags this time, so I could tell they were all there in the country, Um, but I had to find them. So I had a baggage guy very eager to help me so that he would get a little fee paid to him for that. So we were running around looking for bags. I had six checked bags, so it was quite a bit to get together with medical equipment and other things. Um, And then you have to take off your tags on your bags that like they flew in on saying where they're going and the security guard has to match that to your luggage tags and take them away. So you go through another line for that. And then it's finally customs, which is just a single x-ray machine that your bags get pushed through very hurriedly. And as long as you don't have anything really significant like a bag of laptops or electronics or fruit, (laughs) then they let you through without hardly a passing glance. So then you get out and nobody is allowed to be there right at the airport doors um, just because of risks of security in this location. So they actually put everyone behind this barrier across the street. So everyone who's coming to meet the flight is kind of crammed behind this barrier. So you walk out and have to walk out across the street to find your people. So I have a taxi guy, he's very reliable, really good friend, and he was there to pick me up. So we cram all my bags in his, he has a little tiny, like smaller than a Toyota Corolla. And he will just pack and pack and pack 
all the check bags in the back so high, and then he just takes a rope to tie his hood a little bit over it. Then we took off. My country is very desert, dusty, especially in the capital city. The dust just starts billowing, and we drive through the streets. He takes me to my guest house, and I finally arrived in my country, just not at the village yet. And this time when I was coming back, I actually spent almost three weeks in the capital city. I was helping a missionary family with the birth of their second baby. So I was getting pretty eager to get home at that point. We had planned, my short-term missionary and I, where we were actually going to fly down this time. We had a generous friend who wanted to pay for us to fly in and out from furlough. So we planned with MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship, a flight. And you would think maybe a flight down would be more direct and less hassle, less things unknown than anywhere else when we travel by road. But actually, we were delayed more than any other trip I've taken. We had a big rainstorm the night before we were supposed to fly out down in the south, not where the capital was. So it was pretty dry there. So we got reports in the morning that everything is really socked with water. And I guess our airstrip is one of the worst, the pilot said, for not draining off. So there's no way we can fly today with that rain. We're going to have to let it dry out. We, oh, we had to pack all our stuff back up and go back to the guest house where we had cleaned everything out and stripped the beds and tell them we need to stay again another night at least. We didn't have any food hardly, but we kind of snacked through the day, got through the night, planning that maybe we'll get to go tomorrow. But then the next morning we woke up and the pilot who was supposed to pick us up on the way to the airport contacted us and said, sorry, so today there's so much dust in the capital that the airport has shut down any flights to small aircraft. We were downed again. We then ended up actually staying three more days, waiting for the dust to clear and for the airstrip to fully dry out so that it was safe to land down in the south. It was a, a time of patience, to be sure, because I was so eager to get back to my village and my home. And then finally, we were allowed to fly out. So we flew out one morning on the little plane. And we stopped off some other missionaries on the way south that were a little north of us. And it was very difficult to see the airstrip. There was so much dust. She had to make a couple passes before she felt safe landing. And she told us, oh, if your village is like this, when we get there, there's no way I can land. Then we have to decide where I'm going to drop you off out of there. Do we go back to the capital city and try another day? And I so badly wanted to get there. So I asked her about the town next to us that's about 20 kilometers away. And she said, yeah, yeah, we could land there. It's a bigger town. We'll see if your village is too dusty. So we get there and we're circling and circling and she decides to start landing. And then as she's just coming down, all of a sudden she pulls up really fast. And I thought, oh no, is it the dust? You can't see. Cause I couldn't talk to her during that point cause we just have all the noise of the plane in the background. But we finally land on the second pass. And I said, what was the problem? She said, no, I was just, I was headed to land. And then all of a sudden, all these kids came running out on the airstrip. So I had to pull up so I wouldn't hit them. <laughs> we finally landed and we put all our stuff in our one running vehicle that had to stay running the whole time. Cause if you turn it off, it has to be push started. So we kept it running the whole time, threw all our bags in, but helped the pilot first measure the airstrip and check on conditions and make sure she got off okay. And during that time, unfortunately, the truck turned off. <laughs> so we had to gather all the villagers who were around to help and push start our vehicle again and finally drive down the road the final five minutes to my home. And I arrived and, you know, I've been gone three months on furlough and my ladies, my best friends, best local friends were all there and I was still in the truck just driving in and they ran over and they just started pulling me out the window because they were so excited, it had been so long, and kissing every inch of my body. <laughs> and pulling me out of the window until I was like, wait, 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 let me get out. 
and it's a big thing there. They like to just pick you up and swing you around. They're very exuberant when they're excited and so happy to see you. So it was a great welcoming. And as I was getting settled back in my house, just so many people, it's very important in this culture to visit and be present and show that someone is important by giving your time with them. And so many people were coming to visit me and to ask how I was doing. They all love to tell me, oh, your village is so good. It's so good because we can tell your form is so big now. <laughs> their way of saying you've gained weight, which to them is a compliment. And they would put their arms really wide and say, Ellie, your form is so big and so good. Your village was so good to you and fed you well. And this is a place that if you are skinny, it's because you are starving or sickly and you don't have much food. So it's a big compliment. So I try to take it that way with a big smile and say, thank you, thank you. Yes. In my country, everyone would go around and say, Ali, eat here, eat there, eat a meal here. You look so scrawny. And they were so happy to hear that. They're like, oh, they're good people in your village. They made sure you were fed well. It wasn't that long, just a month and a half there, when I had to leave already to come out to our regional retreat for Africa, to another country in Africa. It was a little difficult because it had already been really chaotic for that month and a half. I think I only had two days that felt like we're starting to get towards normal without droves of people to greet and talk to and care for all their problems. Problems. And I'd been going out to the Fulani village once a week, starting to work on language. And so then it was the week before leaving and everyone comes even more because they know you're going to leave again. And they don't really understand time in the same way. They don't quantify it, count it really. It's hard for them really to know more past day to day. So to say I'm gone two weeks doesn't mean much to them. They just said, oh, my Fulani friends said, Ali, you were gone for three months, but to us that was like 10 years. So you're going to leave again? I said, oh, it's, it's shorter this time. It's shorter. So the day before I left, I had invited a lot of the Fulani tribe that were sick to come see me when I saw them the day before because I thought, I don't want them sick for two weeks. I don't want anyone to die. So you all need to come and let me consult you by the hospital. So it made for a very busy day before I left because they all arrived. I had about 12 people to consult, children and adults with a myriad of different problems. They get very confused in the hospital. They're used to open spaces and they get kind of ridiculed and cheated a lot in the hospital. So I kind of act as a go-between and show them around and I will consult them, go take them to where their labs are, make sure they all get done and their ultrasounds and then take them around to go sit on a mat and wait for results and then I'll go get the results and write what kind of medications they need and then you need to carefully explain how to take them because unfortunately a lot of the pills where we are are white and round so they might get three or four different medications that are all white and round and they can't read so I will go through them very carefully and lay them out and say can you see any difference between these three medications oh that one has a line across it so that one's different this one has lettering on the back that is red so that is different and then talk through how they need to take them appropriately so then it was a busy day all day and I had to leave the next morning. I was so exhausted that night, I just went to bed without packing. Got up at 3 a.m. to pack because we left at 5 a.m. So my short-term missionary and I, we met our moto driver, we call him Klondos, at 5 a.m. They started driving us to the neighboring town. It's still the end of rainy season, so our river is still flooded and it covers the road and the bridge is out. So when we got to that section, we had to get off the motorcycles and there's these deep dugout canoes there and they have to lift the motorcycles onto the canoes and the water comes up just about to the edge of the top of the canoe on the way so you don't jiggle it too much or you might get a little bit of a wash. And then you scan for hippos along the way. They're our most dangerous and fun mammals to see in our country. And then get back across, get everybody across, all the luggage. And then we have to pack the motorcycles all back up again, tie everything back on and then take off again. It's about a two hour drive on 
very bumpy, rolly roads, dusty. And we arrive at the bus station in the neighboring town. You buy your tickets, help make sure all your stuff gets loaded, get on the bus. And the buses are pretty nice. They're tall. They can get over the potholes really well. All the luggage goes on the bottom and you have even your own seat up top and a little bit of AC when it's working well. And it's about a seven, eight hour bus drive. You're bouncing here and they're like, you can't even imagine. And actually my favorite best ride on the bus, I say is one time I was seated next to probably the largest woman I have seen in our country because it's rare to see people who are bigger in our country. And she sat down and came halfway into my seat too. And I was next to the window and I thought, oh no, it's not much space. But then I found she hit against me so perfectly and held me in place and she was like this big pillow next to me and all through the bouncing back and forth and back when you'd normally be hitting against the window and trying not to hit the person I was just squeezed perfectly between them all the way we arrive in the capital city and it's already usually a little bit of a culture shock because you're arriving in the city from the village but it's a good transition to start getting ready to travel further and we stay a night and then get up in the morning again for a noon flight out. So we got on our first flight, which was actually to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And when we flew in, it was gonna be an overnight layover. And they have this thing now where they will give you a free hotel. But from our country, it's very poor and everything in the airport is done by hand. Very little things are computerized. And so they can't print out the vouchers for you. So when we arrived in the airport, we had to wait in this long, long line that just didn't seem to move at all, waiting for vouchers, because kind of everybody on our plane from our country did not have vouchers and some other planes arriving. So we waited probably two hours to get our vouchers. And then we had to go, go through another line and stand forever to go through immigration and then another line forever to get your bags through. And I was starting to think, I don't know if the hotel voucher is worth it, uh, but at least we'll get a little sleep tonight. So we finally get shuttled out in the cold, cold Ethiopian air that was about 40 degrees compared to my country that's usually sitting around 100 all the time. And we were shuttled to a little hotel and we slept about five, six hours and then got back up, jumped back on a shuttle. Back to the airport, you go through the whole process again, but at least our bags were checked all the way through so we didn't have to lug them around, just our little carry-ons. Finally get on our final flight to our retreat. Now we finally get to rest. And that is just a picture of what travel can be like to and from my project with different modes of transport. Thank you for listening to Frontier Missions Journal. God bless.